Welcome to episode 12 of the Intermittent Fasting Podcast. If you want to burn fat, gain energy, and enhance your health by changing when you eat, not what you eat, with no calorie counting, then this show is for you. I'm Melanie Avalon, author of The What, When, Wine Diet, available in stores nationwide in 2018. And I'm here with my co-host, Jen Stevens, author of Delay, Don't Deny, Living an Intermittent Fasting Lifestyle. For more on us, check out ifpodcast.com, melanieavalon.com, and jenstevens.com. Please remember, the thoughts and opinions on this podcast do not constitute medical advice or treatment. So, pour yourself a cup of black coffee, a mug of tea, or even a glass of wine, if it's that time, and get ready for the Intermittent Fasting Podcast. One more thing before we jump in. Did you know that common ingredients found in skincare and makeup products can actually disrupt your endocrine system? These endocrine disruptors are a silent threat that can have significant impact on your health, including something that is very important to me, fertility. Your skin is your body's largest organ and what you put on it matters. Endocrine disruptors are chemicals that interfere with the natural hormonal communication in the body. It also matters during pregnancy. And that's one of the reasons I pay close attention to what I put on my skin while being pregnant. Studies have shown that exposure to endocrine disruptors can affect both male and female fertility. For women, these disruptors can lead to irregular menstrual cycles, ovulation issues, and even polycystic ovarian syndrome or PCOS. In men, they can reduce sperm quality and quantity, making it even more challenging to conceive. But it's not just about fertility. When it comes to fat loss, one of the reasons that endocrine disruptors can get in the way of fat loss is because a lot of our toxins are actually stored in our fat. It's a way that our bodies protect us from those toxins. These toxic compounds can even work synergistically, amplifying their harmful effects and making it that much harder to shed unwanted body fat. All of these reasons are why I am obsessed with a company called Beauty Counter. The founder actually started the company when she learned about the potential dangers of toxic chemicals and their link to health issues, specifically miscarriages and infertility. While pregnant, I make sure to only use Beauty Counter products. It's one of the only makeup lines that is officially recommended from the Environmental Working Group. What really sets Beauty Counter apart is their unwavering commitment to protecting us, the consumers, from the hidden dangers that lurk in conventional beauty products. Beauty Counter goes above and beyond, rigorously screening every single ingredient that goes into their products, ensuring that they are safe, clean, and free from harmful toxins. They're not just a beauty brand, they're a movement for change, advocating for stronger regulations in the beauty industry. With Beauty Counter, I know that I can trust that the skincare and makeup that I use are not only effective, but also safe for me and my family. They have skincare lines for every skin type, as well as so many other incredible products. I absolutely love their overnight resurfacing peel. It's my favorite way to get anti-aging benefits in a skincare product. The makeup is absolutely amazing. I have tried alternative beauty products in the past and none of them truly performed. But with Beauty Counter, the foundation is so amazing. It makes me feel like my skin can breathe and it looks so dewy and beautiful. You can shop with me at beautycounter.com slash Vanessa Spina. 
New customers can use the code CLEANFORALL20 for 20% off their first order. Beautycounter.com slash Vanessa Spina. All right, friends, now back to the show. Hi, everybody, and welcome. This is episode 12 of the Intermittent Fasting Podcast. I'm Melanie Avalon, and I'm here with Jen Stevens. Hello, everybody. And how are you today, Jen? I am doing great. How about you? What's what's up with you lately, Melanie? I'm wonderful. As you know, about like two days ago, my book finally went up on Amazon to pre-order, which is just like so exciting. <laughs> that so really the, is. It's, it's real now, right? Yeah. It feels like. And it's funny. So it's the new version, to clarify for listeners, because I've been getting a lot of questions about this. It's a new version of my original self-published book, The What, When, Wine Diet. It's basically an entire new book. It's about 80% new content. Um, it was just going to be like slightly updated, but I started, I just so much, I just learned so much since writing, even though it's only been about three years, but there's been right. so many more studies and I've just learned so much. And so it's basically a brand new book. Um, but it's funny. So my publisher didn't even tell me that it was on Amazon and I was, I just looked on Amazon for my book to check something and it popped up to pre-order and I was like, wait, what? what? And it was like the first time that I, it was like the first time I saw the cover and then it said that it was like number one in gluten-free new releases for gluten-free diets. And I was like, what is happening? That's um, so exciting. So it's really exciting. Um, but one other funny thing is it's right now it's number one also in new releases for high protein diets, which I, that's great, but I'm just like... <laughs> My whole thesis now is that you should find what works for you. And I'm like, no, it's not right. necessarily high protein. Like, <laughs> like no, Amazon changed the category. Well, that's um, exciting. I know it just it felt great to see it there. I can just imagine. It's really exciting. <laughs> well, congratulations. Thank you. Thank you. So how about you? How are things with you? They're going great. I am actually working on book number two, which is is taking a lot of time. And what you just said about finding things that work for us, that we're all so individual. I've been doing a lot of research on the gut microbiome and also our genetics. I had one of those genetic tests done earlier this year that are, are so popular. I, I use 23andMe and you've had that one done too. Is that the, that the same company? Um, I did Genes for Good, which is the, okay. the free Facebook version. It takes like months to do because you have to do oh. like a research study basically or like you have to take little quizzes and stuff. Um, but yeah, 23andMe. So what did you what did you find? Well, it's just so interesting because when I first got it, I, when I got the results, you know, I got the 23andMe report and it, it has some very interesting stuff on there. Like I didn't know some of the things about where my ancestors were from. I had no idea about that. And some things I thought were true ended up not being true about where we were from. And also it had some very basic health stuff in there that was interesting, but not a lot of depth. And I remember at the time hearing that you could go through some databases or some third-party applications or, or websites and delve into the raw data from your 23andMe report. So the other day I started researching that and investigating it, and I um, through one of the, the websites that allows you to do it, I've been exploring my raw data and just seeing what all I can find about myself, and it is absolutely fascinating. Um, for anybody who's read my book, Delay, Don't Deny, I talk about how I tried to live a low-carb lifestyle, and I didn't lose any weight. Like, you know, people go on a low-carb diet, and they're like, this is great, and they lose all their weight, and they live like that forever. Well, that didn't happen to me. I didn't lose any weight, and I didn't feel good. And I found a website that had, like, a flow chart where you could trace your specific 
results from your raw data. I can't even use the right terminology, like SNPs yeah, or something. I I, the, <laughs> yeah, SN, the single yeah. new. What is it? Single what, yeah, nucle- I don't know. Polymorphism. <laughs> the SNPs, yes. whatever they yes, are. Yes, yes, yes. Um, single nucleotide <laughs> polymorphism, I think. But yes, but I was looking at my SNPs. I always want to call them the SNPs. Maybe they're that's what that. I call them. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> when you can trace your individual ones, and it'll show you, like for example, what type of exercise is recommended for you based on your DNA. Or what type of diet would be best for you for weight loss purposes based on your individual DNA? And, of course, this science is is new. And in the infancy, I believe, we're just learning about it, this whole idea of personalized nutrition. But I followed the flowchart and looked at all of my different, you know, the directions it told me to go. And I am in the percentage of the population that would lose weight on a low-fat diet versus a low-carb mm. diet. And I was just like, light bulbs. Because I know we've we've joked about this in other um, podcasts. Back in the early 90s, I actually did follow a low-fat diet, and I lost weight. That was back in the Snackwell era when we were all eating all those low-fat junk food foods. And, of course, it wasn't very healthy. But I did lose weight, and I never was able to lose weight on a low-carb diet. And I was like, well, there you go. Apparently, this is in my genes. And what's so funny is how, you know, the the two sides argue about everyone should be low-carb, everyone should be low-fat, everyone should eat this way. It drives me insane. Exactly. And apparently, no. (laughs) You know, I I would pretty much bet money that the people who are all saying everyone should eat low-carb probably go the other direction on their, you know, genetic flowchart results versus – me going the the way of the um the low fat now I don't eat a low fat diet now I love fat I eat plenty of fat but it's just interesting to see that my genes paint a picture that one one may be preferred for me over the other yeah it's it's so fascinating I love it I actually I wrote um, a blog post where I talked about the whole process and some of the different companies and uh like I used Promet I don't know if it's Prometheus I don't know how you say it. Yeah, that's that's where I, I actually input my raw data yeah, to, to get the, the first, yep, to look through. And there's so much in there, and and some of it's hard to interpret. And more and more companies are going to start offering services for you to import your raw data. Some of them are free. Some of them have um, have paid services. But it's so interesting. I think we're looking at the future. Oh, I agree. I and I think I think it's too. Uh, there's a good side and a bad side, though. I think it's so key, and it really is possibly the key to our health and our life and just everything. But at the same time, we know so little that I think we will quickly jump to assumptions. Like we'll see, we'll see a gene and think that that means we're destined, um, right to some sort of negative effect or something in our body. Whereas I think genes are triggered by environment and lifestyle. And so I think that's something important to keep in mind. That's true. And interestingly, my husband did the same study as me, but he didn't want to do the health stuff. He didn't want (laughs) He said no, because he's a worrier. I'm a worrier. (laughs) Yeah. Well, like you were just talking about, um, you see that you may be predisposed, for example, it might say you're based on this gene, you're predisposed for Alzheimer's. And then, you know, my husband would then start worrying every day that he's got Mm -hmm. Alzheimer's, you know, and that it doesn't mean that you just because you have this genetic association, that doesn't mean it's your destiny. It means that people with your same genetic background have a higher likelihood, but it, it, it depends on your lifestyle and so many things. Exactly. You're not, it's not your destiny or your fate. It goes back to my favorite quote, something like 
genes build the gun, but environment pulls the trigger. Well, that makes sense because we've we've got these different characteristics, but we still have to have the right factors, you know, line up just right so for it to happen. So it's not our destiny. We don't have to be scared of it. It could also help you make different lifestyle choices because just, you know, learning that, that my DNA shows that a low-carb diet is not going to probably be effective for me, I would certainly never try that again. Exactly. <laughs> if I ever did need to lose more weight, which hopefully I won't, thanks to intermittent fasting, I would know that that perhaps a low-fat approach would be better for me, and I would go more plant-based and leaving out the fats. It's just fascinating. It is. So, yeah, we're all different. We are. Yep. Well, speaking of intermittent fasting, I guess we can jump into our listener questions. We have a ton. To yes, we to, do. And I'm really excited about a lot of these today. Well, I'll start off, read, read the first one. You ready for me to read it? I am. Go for it. Okay. This is from Regina, and the subject is accurately determining my fasting period. And it says, hi, Melanie and Jen. I absolutely love your podcast. You have such fantastic energy, and each episode is full of great information. I have a question about the fasting period. I'd like to know how to determine when it starts exactly. The start of the feeding window is quite easy to determine as it begins by definition when you first break your fast. So I found that pretty self-explanatory. I'm having a bit more trouble with the fasting window. If, for example, I begin eating at 2 p.m. and have the last bite of food at 5 p.m., what would the corresponding fasting period begin? An hour after I've last ingested food? Two hours? more. I guess my sticking point is the amount of time it takes for the food to be digested because saying that my fasting window begins at 5 p.m. doesn't really seem logical to me since my stomach is full at that point and will be for a while after that. Thank you so much for taking the time to answer my question. So what do you say about that, Melanie? Well, first of all, hi, Regina. And this is a fantastic question. We actually received it pretty recently, even though our other questions are from a while back. But I saw this question and I was like, we have to address this because it's so important and basic. Um, But I don't think we talk about it a lot. So you're exactly on point, Regina. When you stop eating, you are in the fed state. You're not in the fasted state. Most people actually hit the, quote, fasted state around 12 hours or so after you eat, which is quite a while. But when we, when we personally count our fasting window, we, that is included. So once you stop eating, you consider that the beginning of your fasting window, even though you're technically, like you realized, not fasted. That's why we recommend going, or at least I do recommend going at least 12 hours. That's when you actually hit the fasted state. And then Beyond there is when you really start tapping into fat stores. That's why 16 hours is typically typically used as a nice window because you, you get four really good hours of fasting in. Um, and then, of course, other things are going to affect how long it actually takes to enter the fasted state. I mean, what you ate, like you said, how long, how much time is spent on digestion. In general, you're right on. The window starts with your last bite of food, but you're not actually fasted. So... Any thoughts on that? No, that's exactly right. And, you know, really, we, we don't know exactly the second that every single person precisely, you know, your body is switching over from the fast the, or the fed state to the fasted state. Like you said, Melanie, it depends on a lot of factors, your own hormonal levels, your own, um, the way, is your body fat adapted? But we don't worry about that. In the intermittent fasting community, we usually see 
you know, think about 24 hours a day and we think about the feds, the fed or feeding window, that's our eating window. And then the rest of that we just call our um, fasting time. So even though, like you said, Melanie, we're not technically through with burning up our last meal, we count that as part of our fasting time because you're not eating, even though your body is, is busy digesting because otherwise we would never be able to calculate it because it's different. It's not going to occur at precisely the same moment every day. So like, let's say you're doing a 19-5 fasting regimen. Um, that means that you are having a five-hour eating window and then the 19 hours are the hours you are not eating. That doesn't mean that your body is in the fasted state for 19 hours, it means you're not eating for 19 hours. How much of that time is technically the fasted state depends on your body, but we call that the fasting window. So try not to get too caught up in that or worry about it overly because we can really overcomplicate what's a simple way of life. Mm -hmm. You just you just track the the eating window, worry about your eating window, and then the fasting time will happen for your body, your, your body knows what to do, and it'll enter, to the, enter into the official fasted state once it's burned through what you've eaten, your glycogen score, stores, all of that. We don't have to know exactly the moment that happens. Like one last thought, for example, if all you ate for dinner, please don't do this, but if all you ate was one apple, it's not going to be 12 hours before right. you <laughs> um, enter the fasted state again, but please don't just eat an apple. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> please don't. Okay. <laughs> all right. So our next question comes from Licia, and she says, what are some symptoms someone may have when beginning an IF lifestyle? How do you adapt? And then she also asks, um, what if you take medication that requires food in the AM? Do you have suggestions to cause the least amount of an insulin spike? All right. So that first question, symptoms when beginning an IF lifestyle, what are your thoughts? Well, symptoms makes it sounds like like a negative, like we're we're having some some terrible things mm -hmm. happen. But I think that's what she's um, asking, though, right? Like, okay, like what are some some bad things? Um, you know, when you're you're used to running on your um your food, you know, you're you're a typical person who's been eating breakfast, lunch, dinner, and snacks. You're used to being in the fed state during the day. Your body is used to running on glucose from your last meal. So when you first start an intermittent fasting lifestyle, your body is, is not going to know what to do right away. And so you're going to feel tired, sluggish. Your body may, you know, send you a headache <laughs> to get your attention. You know, you're, you don't have the energy to, um, to run on because your body is looking for that quick energy from food that it's used to eating. So until your body turns the corner and learns how to burn your own fat for fuel, just expect that you could be sluggish. You could have headaches. Some people experience nausea. It doesn't sound like fun at all, does it? But Not at all. <laughs> no. Over time, your body does adapt. And so if we felt these same symptoms or effects always, no one would ever become an intermittent faster because it would be miserable. So you just have to understand that this is part of the adaptation phase. And um, there are different ways you can you can deal with it. You know, in our coffee episode, we talked about bulletproof coffee and probably how we, we don't want to include that during the fast if our goal is fat burning. But the exception is if you're in the adjustment phase like this. If you're trying to teach your body how to burn fat for fuel, you may want to rely on some things like 
bulletproof, bulletproof coffee or start slow. Maybe don't go straight to a, a you know, 5 p.m. eating window. Instead, start with a couple of meals and eventually push your way back so that your body will have time to, to develop the, um, the fat burning skills that it needs. You don't have to do it all at once. What do you think, Melanie? Yep, I agree. Moodiness and low blood sugar and just that initial transition phase is really the main negative symptom you'll have. Um, I do love caffeine. <laughs> I do think coffee and tea really help. And staying busy, that can make a huge difference. If you don't, don't just, um, I encourage you not to lie around on your first fasting day in, in like a lethargic state and be like, I'm fasting. Um, <laughs> like, no, just stay busy and uh, your body will adapt uh, even faster, I find. So yeah, I think that's true. Busyness is the key. Yes. The second part of her question was about medication. And um, I want to all, you know, always emphasize that Melanie and I are not doctors. We are intermittent fasters. We read a lot. We know a lot of things. We um, have a lot of great information for you. But, of course, when it comes to medication, follow all dosage as um, explained by your doctor or written on the, the medication bottle. If you're supposed to take it with food, you need to take it with food for whatever reason. That's how your medication was prescribed. So, there are a lot of people who have medications that they need to take in the morning and they're hoping to live an intermittent fasting lifestyle. And you're just going to have to break that fast for just a, a brief period of time to take the medication. Um, obviously, as you said, we don't want to cause a huge insulin spike. So that would be when you would think of what foods are not going to spike your insulin. And fat has been shown to cause the least amount of insulin spike. Both carbohydrates and protein are going to cause a, a higher insulin spike. So, you know, think about foods that are going to be higher in fat. Um, some people might use part of a boiled egg. I know that also has protein in it too. It's hard to, you know, separate it out completely because most foods are a mixture of more than one macronutrient. They're not just, you know, pure fat. You know, you could always stick it in some butter and <laughs> take it that way. But even, but you know. <laughs> I was actually going to recommend butter. Were you going to recommend butter? If, uh, if you could actually, I don't know. You can stick it in a piece of butter. If you can, uh, if that's something that works for you. Some people have success with like a little bit of heavy cream. Um, some people think heavy cream is not going to interrupt the fast much. So use a little heavy cream to coat your stomach unless it's a medication that is not supposed to be taken with dairy. And there are medications like that. Um, one other recommendation I've heard is chia seeds. Now, I would not, you know, make a habit of just like thinking, oh, chia seeds, I'm just going to have that during the fast all the time. No, I mean, they're going to get in your stomach. They're going to bulk it up. But they may provide a great, um, they, they kind of gel up. So do you think those would bind to the medication at all? Oh, I don't know. that's an ex I that's know, a great but... well, that's a great question. Maybe that maybe it would. I've just seen that as a recommendation. I heard that on another um intermittent fasting podcast as a suggestion. So you're right, that's a great question and I don't know. You certainly don't want to take something that's gonna bind to the medication. Yeah. I, I was gonna suggest maybe avocado. That's really high fat, lower protein. I do think protein is what you wanna avoid, maybe even more than Car well, carbs and protein are going to break the fast. But for me personally, like protein, that just starts the digestion process, stops right. autophagy. Um, so yeah, maybe nuts could be something like macadamia nuts that are really, really high fat. That's a great suggestion. Yeah. But you have to do what you have to do. If you mm -hmm. have to take a medication, I mean, you don't want to have a whole giant meal if you're trying to fast. You want to have 
just enough so that the medication can do what it needs to do and not upset your stomach because a lot of medications are very harsh on an empty stomach. So you just have to figure out what, what works best for you. And it may not be ideal as far as the fasted state goes, but taking your medication as directed is more important than yes, anything else. I agree. And don't don't stress about it. It's going to be a small amount that you'll be taking in and you'll quickly get back in the fasted state. Right. So. All right. All right. Are we ready for the next question? Yes. Yes. This is, I believe, Miolani. And the subject is body odor. And she said, love, love, love the podcast, ladies. It seems that since starting 16-8 IF, I have developed extreme body odor. Is this normal? Maybe from the cleansing. Yikes, it's embarrassing. What do you say <laughs> about that, Melanie? So I sort of love this question, Miolani. <laughs> um, so I personally, this is just interesting for me. I used to have body odor like normal people. Um, but since adopting both IF and a Whole Foods paleo lifestyle, I actually rarely ever have body odor now. And I don't sweat as much either, um, which I find really interesting. The only time I have body odor, and it's very definite, is if I eat something that is not, that's more processed or is not whole foods, the next day I will smell it. I'll smell it. I'll, like I'll have body odor. And it's very, very interesting. And it's very definite. I don't think it's in my mind. Um, but as far as your question goes, <laughs> no, right? I'm like smelling myself now. We're, we're on Skype. We can see each other. We're like I checking our armpits. <laughs> um, but yeah, so intermittent fasting though, it's definitely a detox process. And I definitely think that that could be a reason that you are experiencing the body odor um, for sure. So I would recommend that you that you stick it out and maybe look at the food choices that you're making. Um, you might be eating pretty clean already, but I find that the more clean you eat, the more whole foods that that can really help with the body odor. Um, you can also try, I finally, and it took me forever because I thought it was going to be miserable and I would feel gross, but I finally switched to the quote, like natural deodorants rather than the ones, the processed commercial ones that contain is it aluminum or whatever right yes um, i think it is aluminum that's the the thing that we worry about mm -hmm. so i went i actually use an all-natural one now and there's a transition period where you do sweat a little bit more but after you maintain that for a while it's for me personally and a lot of the reviews on amazon <laughs> um <laughs> it really really can help in the body odor dep department because your body stops going through this cycle every day of suppressing um, because with, nor with normal deodorant, it's like your body suppresses your natural detox and then it just builds up and then it comes out and it's just this cycle of more body odor. Whereas when you get rid of that and you use a natural deodorant, um, I'll put a link in the show notes to, to the one I use that I absolutely love, but I found that that has really helped regulate. Another thing you can try as well is a lot of people take chlorophyll and that actually serves as an internal deodorizer. Um, and can really help with body odor. So hopefully that can help. But yes, it probably is related to intermittent fasting. But it's a good thing, even though I know you probably don't think it's a good thing. But um, <laughs> how about you, Jen? Okay, well, I just have to share something funny first. And when you were talking about the um, the natural deodorant, I tried to switch to natural deodorant maybe about a year ago. You know, because I'm wearing a lot of – I guess what's funny, I used to be, you know, 80 pounds bigger than I am now. So I didn't wear a lot of sleeveless Thing. So now that I'm smaller, I'm wearing a lot of sleeveless clothes. And so I always found I would sweat more in the sleeveless clothes than I did with sleeves. 
I don't know. But I tried to switch to the natural deodorant because the the non the other the regular ones that most people use get on your clothes a lot. They stain your clothes. So that was one of my motivations. So I tried to switch. I'm going to have to look and see what kind you use. Maybe I'll try that because I had to stop using the natural deodorant. Once my natural deodorant itself started to smell like BO, I was like, no. oh no. <laughs> yeah. So I was like, I'm doing something wrong. So I just threw that away and said, forget it. Um, so I may have to try the brand you use. My um, natural deodorant experience did not work so well. Oh, no. Yeah, I did. I tried a few <laughs> different brands and I found okay. one that I love it's called i'll put the link but it's called uh, i think it's green tidings or green green something okay well i'll try that because the kind that i use did not work for me and i feel like if your deodorant smells like bo then itself, the problem then, <laughs> i was like okay that that's another thing i'll just put into the trash but <laughs> anyway I, th- I think what you said about the um the fasting possibly causing the detox you know as your body is working through I, th- I think that makes sense. You know, we, our bodies have a lot of cleansing that they can do if we just get out of the way and, and let it happen. And, and the fasted state is when it occurs. All right. So our next question, and I'm not sure how to pronounce this, so I'm sorry if I say it wrong, but it comes from either it's Fabian or Fabian. But he says, Dear Melanie and Jen, I started tuning into your podcast last week and already listened to all the episodes. You ladies are amazing. Thank you so much, ladies, for the podcast and for answering our questions. Okay, and so he has a few questions. So his first question. I've been using IF for the last month, using the 16-8 program, and I didn't notice any significant weight loss so far. I'm not eating too much, and I go to the gym almost on a daily basis and use Freeletics for the training. And in addition, I try walking at least 10,000 steps a day. Do you think that there might be something wrong? So that's his first question. Okay, you want to just do that one first, and then we can sure, go on. Sure, sure. All right, Fabian. Um, you've been doing 16-8 for a month, and you haven't seen any weight loss so far, or significant weight loss so far, I might add. So I don't really know. Maybe there's been some, um, just not what you would consider to be significant. But I notice that you go to the gym on a daily basis, or almost on a daily basis. And as we've talked about on um, previous episodes of the podcast, when you're in the fasted state, your body is producing a lot of growth hormone, which is great for building muscle. And you're in the, having the process of autophagy, which is also you know, great for recycling those proteins and building muscle while you're working out. So you're probably building a good bit of muscle. And so if you're um, measuring your weight loss only by what the scale is showing you, you may actually see weight gain if you are burning a lot of fat and building a lot of muscle, which you very, very easily could be doing, your body is going through a recomposition process. And so the scale may not do what you think it should do. So instead, pay attention to your measurements, your size, you know, are your, your pants getting looser? You know, your clothes, what can you tell in your clothing? So, um, I, th- I don't know that it means that you're doing something wrong. I just think that you may be measuring the wrong, the wrong thing here. What do you think, Melanie? Yeah, that my that was my first thing. I was going to ask: Is your body composition changing rather than your weight, which is um, something that can be key? I'd also like to emphasize: You're doing a, I mean, you're doing a lot of activity, and you're not eating as much. Like I'm seeing a lot of focus on the activity side of things rather than the eating side of things. Um, so I'd almost encourage you to maybe reevaluate your eating patterns. Maybe you want to eat more, <laughs> actually, or maybe you want to eat. And I just know that I know this because I know the questions 
your next questions that are coming. Um, you might want to switch to more, I know I say this a lot, but you might want to switch to more whole foods rather than processed foods. Um, that might actually make a difference as well in your weight loss. You could also try shortening your eating window, but still getting enough calories. I'm just seeing a lot of fixation on the activity side of things, which is good. I mean, that's good, but I just think you should look at the whole picture of what you're eating um, rather than what you're doing. Um, But you're not doing something wrong. (laughs) I don't think we should ever see things as doing something wrong. Um, We can just see how we can maybe make things better. So I'll read a second question. He says, do you think that exogenous ketones can help when doing IF? I usually eat 12 to 8 p.m. Would taking exogenous ketones before going to sleep or in the morning help in anything? Will it break the fast? I'll go ahead and address what exogenous ketones are. So they're basically, they're they're not like coconut oil or MCT or anything like that. They're supplemental ketones. So they're, they're like basically taking straight up ketones. I mean, there are a lot of different versions of it and supplements and some of them are more like in drinks drink form and some are more in supplement form um, but that's what exogenous ketones are all right let, let's talk about exogenous ketones and um and whether they might be beneficial this is going to probably be controversial and not everyone is going to agree on this because you know once we realize that something is good for us like ketosis and ketones then the supplement industry says, aha, ketones are good for us. Let's put more into our body. And so then they start figuring out how to make supplements and how to get it into us in other ways. And actually, I think that what we really want to do is rely on the natural processes that our bodies have in place as much as possible. We know that benefits occur when we're in the state of ketosis and that ketones are are part of that beneficial state. But is it the ketones themselves, or is it the fact that our body is going through these processes? I think the body processes are the important part, not the fact that we are, not not the ketones as these magical ingredients that more taking more of them will, will make your body better. Instead, let your body make the ketones and use those. Um, I don't know, it, it goes back to, many things in the supplement industry. For example, you know, we learn about vitamins and foods or, or different compounds that are found in the foods. Think about beta carotene, for example. That's a compound that scientists discovered and they said, oh, beta carotene is great for you. It's healthy. It's wonderful. So then they isolate it and give it to us in supplement form. But we find that in the supplement form, it doesn't necessarily work the same way in the body as if you're taking it through the real foods, the whole foods, the actual foods. So my philosophy is nature is going to do it better, and it's when we try to make our own version of it synthetically or however we're we're getting it or isolating it, and we're missing the point. The point of ketosis is the process and the ketones that your body is producing, not let's get as many ketones into my body as I can through this supplement that I'm taking. Um, Also, I've read that many of these... um, ketone, the exogenous ketones actually do facilitate an increase in insulin. So they're going to cause you to have an insulin spike. And you certainly don't want that during fasting. It's going to be counterproductive. You'll have these ketones that you took, but you're not producing your own anymore because you're relying on these supplemental ketones. What do you think about all that, Melanie? I know I just said a lot. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Well, philosophy-wise, I'm on board with you as far as 
favoring our body's natural processes rather than supplements in general. So for like, I actually don't encourage taking vitamin supplements in general. Um, there are different, there are special situations. Um, but I do think like whole foods and relying on our body naturally is usually the best way to go. That said, I do diverge a little bit <laughs> um, in my view on exogenous ketones. I hadn't actually done any specific research on them myself before receiving this question. My only experience with them was I have listed, listened to a ton of interviews about them from people I really respect who do see them as very therapeutic and very beneficial um, for the body. And ketones themselves, A, they are an energy energy substrate in the body. They're very clean burning. They're better um, than glucose in that they produce more ATP or energy and then with less toxic byproducts. They also seem to be therapeutic themselves, aside from the energy that they produce. But I finally sat down and did some research on them, and the studies I found were actually very supportive of their benefits. Um, so it seems that they are taking exogenous ketones rapidly escalates the ketogenic state. So it really raises ketone levels in the blood and it um, increases beta-hydroxybutyrate, which is a very beneficial source. And I, you said that about the insulin, but all the studies I found actually said that it typically can, it reduces glucose levels, which I found well, really interesting. But it's, it's increasing the insulin, which would decrease the glucose levels. Oh, you're saying that it increases the insulin, which pulls the yes. glucose out of the bloodstream. Right. Yeah. Interesting. Yeah, I'd have to think about that more. I do know in general, this is kind of a side note, that some people do are proponent of not necessarily exogenous ketones, but of putting like MCT oil with a higher carb meal and getting the benefits of ketosis in a way and the benefits of ketones while still eating higher carb and not so it's like a ketogenic state, but not as much of a ketogenic state. I was like mitigating the effects. But going back to the studies on the exogenous ketones found some that said that that showed that it was very anti-inflammatory and increased a lot of biomarkers in the blood that were uh, anti-inflammation and also might be beneficial for cancer. So it seems to me that they can be therapeutic and beneficial. I haven't personally taken them, but I will definitely end with the major caveat that, like you said, Jen, the supplement industry loves, loves, loves <laughs> to grab things and run with it and get our money from it. And I do think a lot of the supplement, the exogenous ketones that are available for purchase, they're often in forms of like flavory, drinky things that are really expensive. And I, I don't really personally recommend those. I think if you are using them, if you, I would try to go really pure and just see how it makes you feel. Um yeah, so I, I do think it could possibly be therapeutic. You'd have to just try it for yourself and see how it makes you feel. And I wanted to speak to that for just a minute. You're sure. right about the the, thera the therapeutic benefits are, are separate from really what I was talking about when I said n not to recommend them during the fasting time. It depends on what your goals are. The, from what I've read, the exogenous ketones can be great if you're trying to treat specific conditions, you know, epilepsy, Parkinson's, Alzheimer's. They're using these types of um, supplements, the, the exogenous ketones, and having great results with those specific conditions, you know, the neurological conditions. But 
if your goal is you want to burn your fat and your intermittent fasting for that purpose, I, I think that you'll be best served to let your body do that. That's just, that's my take on it. So as I said, I knew my, my take might be a little controversial because we hear so many people pushing the, the ketones and suggesting that you take them. Just my personal philosophy is I would not, I would rather let my body do what it's going to do with ketosis. You know, I'm not trying to treat any you know, neurological conditions. I'm trying to do intermittent fasting for the purpose of, you know, staying lean, having autophagy, having my body get into ketosis naturally. Mm-hmm. So it, it really, it depends on why are you using them? And me. I think it depends on the individual person. Like yeah, I probably. do wonder, I do wonder for some people if um, it might help catalyze their transition to the at the beginning. state. Yeah. If yeah. They have never I could done. see that too. I could see it as possibly, you know, like we recommend with the Bulletproof coffee or the, um, you know, putting coconut oil in the coffee. I can see that possibly during the transition period, this might help your body get used to that. So I could see that, that there may be a benefit there, but it, it's hard for me to know exactly because of whenever su- supplement companies start pushing things, I'm going to naturally say, wait, you know, <laughs> <laughs> I know I hear you. They're all going to say great things about it, you know, especially if they're you know, sponsoring a podcast and then the podcast raves about them. Well, there's a sponsor. So I, I was going to say, put it out there. If any, um, exogenous ketone supplement creator of a pure form wants to send us some to try as samples, <laughs> we will <laughs> gladly do an experiment and report back. Oh, but if we don't, funny. if we don't have good findings though, then that could be we a would problem. Tell the truth, we yeah. would tell the truth. <laughs> they're <laughs> just, they're so expensive though. Um, yeah, yeah they so are. Definitely keep us updated though. Fabian or Fabian, uh, Fabian, <laughs> uh, let us know. Maybe I, I would like to try them someday. We can, I'll put that on the, on the to-do list. Just to see. Yes. All right. You want to read Fabian's third question? Sure. So I'm actually going to, he has two more questions. I'm actually going to combine them because they kind of go together. So he says, if I do 16, eight, and I generally do two to three meals in those eight hours, two little and one big, is it okay to drink every once in a while, some diet soda with the meals? I'm thinking mostly on the insulin effect. And then his next question, he says, most of the time, my small meals include a small protein shake the 20 gram protein, 99 calorie muscle milk one, and a 15 gram protein bar, around 250 calories. I guess both things have artificial sweeteners. Is it okay to have meals with artificial sweeteners? Again, I'm asking mostly because of the insulin effect. So would you like to jump in on that? Yes, I will. First of all, once you're eating, I I don't worry about the insulin effect anymore once I'm eating. Yeah. So if you're only thinking about the insulin effect, I mean, you're eating now, especially, you know, you're having protein bars, protein shakes, you're going to be releasing a good bit of insulin from that, that you're having. So don't worry about the insulin effect of the artificial sweetener. There's other things to worry about (laughs) with the artificial sweeteners though, not the insulin effect, but that's just something I wanted to get in, get out there. Um, Once you get into the fed state, your body is releasing insulin. Um, so, you know, don't worry about that. But as far as the, you know, can you have some diet soda? Can you have these things with artificial sweeteners? Yes, you absolutely can. Um, my philosophy is in your eating window, you make choices based on the lifestyle you want to live and the, the types of foods you believe are beneficial to your body and the types of foods that, that you want to eat. Now, that being said, personally, 
artificial sweeteners are one of the things that I gave up years and years ago just because I'd read so much about the negative effects of the artificial sweeteners. I would never personally choose to have anything artificially sweetened. And I, I hope that doesn't come across as judgmental or judgy. Um, I choose to have the real version. You know, if I want to have something sweetened, I'm going to have it sweetened um, with sugar. Or, you know, and some people would, would say, well, that's even worse. And, and maybe, you know, it is. That's just, I just also don't like artificial sweeteners the way they taste. So, Personally, I don't choose to use artificial sweeteners, and I think that they're ha they have a lot of negative effects on our bodies, our gut microbiomes as, as one. But if you're choosing to do that, you know, that's, that's a personal choice. What do you think about that, Melanie? Yep, I think you hit on wonderful points. It's not that we should never release insulin. We need insulin. When we eat, we want to release insulin. If we don't, we're going to be in very big trouble because insulin is what takes care of our assimilating our food and our nutrients and everything like that. So it's not about the insulin effect. That said, like you said, Jen, um, I don't think artificial sweeteners are, are ideal for health at all. And I, I don't want to come off as judgmental either. Um, but I'm definitely on the same page there. So, and I will speak to a few specific studies about them and some findings just in case you're wondering, because it seems like Fabian is he, since he asked two questions about the uh, the artificial sweeteners, it's something on his mind. So here's some food for thought, no pun intended. Um, so <laughs> it's really interesting. They they don't know why because it doesn't make sense from a calories in, calories out perspective. But in general, the correlational studies do link artificial sweeteners to weight gain and overconsumption. So people who take in artificial sweeteners either by themselves, like in the fasted state, or with food they tend to end up eating more and gain weight from such, which is really interesting. So, for example, rats that eat saccharin, which is the uh, the sweet and low, the, the pink packet, um, they tend to eat more if they're eating saccharin with their meal, which is interesting. Um, st studies have also found that tasting aspartame increases food appetite, but swallowing it in pill form doesn't. So there's something about taking, like tasting the artificial sweetener that makes you hungrier and makes you eat more. Again, they don't really know what that is, but it's something. Um, also, something else. Uh, I read a study where people who knew they were taking in artificial sweeteners, they would end up eating more. Whereas if they took in artificial sweeteners without realizing they were artificial sweeteners, they didn't. And so that could be a psychological thing. Like people... Oh, I think... Oh, I'm eating... I'm having Diet Coke or I'm having a diet food so I can you think you justify eating more as a result. Um, so that can be a thing. And then lastly, and I think this is huge, huge, huge. And uh, Jen and I have talked about this a lot. They're, they're, they're finding more and more that artificial sweeteners do affect the gut microbiome and not in a good way. Um, it seems to encourage bacterial species in our gut, which encourage weight gain. And so that could be a key reason that artificial sweeteners are linked to weight gain. So if, so if weight gain is something that you're concerned about, which from your first question, it seems that, that is something that you're um, concerned with, I would, if you can, I would really encourage you to try cutting them out for a little bit and seeing how you feel. Yeah, I agree. And again, it's not the insulin effect. It's it's the other, it's the artificial sweeteners themselves. And I actually want to um, say I'm working on my new book, like I said, and I have a whole chapter in the book about insulin. And because we're so focused in the, the fasting community on keeping insulin low that we forget that insulin actually serves purposes in our body. And so 
you know, we don't necessarily want to have low insulin all the time. And so um, just like intermittent fasting is good, intermittent high versus low levels of insulin, it, it, there's a purpose in our body for having higher levels of insulin at certain times. So as I research about that, it's fascinating because we just focus so much on keep the insulin low, keep the insulin low, that we think that should be our 24-7 goal when really, hmm, that insulin is doing something beneficial. Yeah, I think that's not a just, huge misconception. I, th- huge. I think it is. And so, yeah, so I'm, I'm devoting a whole chapter of, of the book to that, and I've been researching it. And it's interesting because – we we just don't understand that insulin is not a, t- a bad thing in our bodies. Just because we want to keep it low during the fast, that doesn't mean that insulin is bad. Insulin resistance is bad. You know, yes, insulin resistance is not a good thing. So we, we tend to think that just means that insulin is bad. Yeah. What, what you don't want is chronically high insulin all the time. Exactly. You just right. want punctuated insulin after you eat. Right. For that brief moment while it deals with what you ate and then you exactly. want it to kind of go, go back away. down yeah <laughs> <laughs> exactly insulin you should have periods where it's higher during the day tied into your eating window and then during your um, fasting time it goes down now of course if you have insulin resistance and your insulin is high all the time you do want to work on bringing that down that's mm-hmm. a whole separate issue um and there there can be dietary things you want to do for a while to get your insulin levels back down but Insulin is not bad in itself. Yes. All righty. <laughs> well, this has been wonderful. Thank you, everybody, so much for your questions. And if you have your own questions, please send them to us. We would love to hear them. There are two ways you can do that. You can email questions at ifpodcast.com. You can also go to our website, ifpodcast.com, and you can submit questions there. And also at that website, we have show notes. So that's where all of the random studies that we just kind (laughs) of threw at you, you can actually find the links to those studies and read them for yourself. And we also will provide links to anything else we talked about, like the uh, the deodorant (laughs) and all of all the stuff. I'm going to be looking up that one. Yes, it's great. I love it. I love it. And then lastly, if you enjoyed today's podcast, we would love, 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 love if you could leave us a review on iTunes. That just really helps ever so much. So thank you in advance for that. Yes, any final thoughts, Jen? No, I think that's it. I think we had some very interesting conversation today, and I enjoyed it. Me too. I like that we diverged a little bit on some of our – Well, you know, I think so. We – we're not always going to agree. And that's the thing in the community, not everyone always agrees on things. And, and that's so, okay. It's, it is. Yeah, that is okay. <laughs> we can all have yeah. different opinions. It's finding what works for you personally. I think right. that's so key. All right. Well, thank you everybody. And we'll see you next week. All right. Thanks. Bye. Okay, bye. Thank you so much for listening to the intermittent fasting podcast. Please remember The opinions we discussed on this show do not constitute medical advice. We're not doctors. Check out ifpodcast.com for more information on us. Theme music was composed by Leland Cox. See you next week.